We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the we Layman's Lounge podcast. This is a ministry of thelaymanslounge.com um, where we seek to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. My name is Jason Estopanol. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer from Kona, Hawaii. On the other line is Joe Humphreys. He's an appliance salesman in Mount Vernon, Washington. What's up, Joe? Hey, anyone listening, if you have any questions about front load laundry, just go ahead and type it on the Layman's Lounge Facebook page. I'll be there. Thank you for being that resource. Today, we have the honor, and I'm not just saying it, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit, um, I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little bit nervous. We have Dr. Richard Mao, who is a pillar and a professor at Fuller Seminary, author of more than 20 books, including Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. Um, he also wrote or edited The Challenges of Cultural Discipleship. This one right here, Talking with Mormons, an Invitation to Evangelicals. And then the book that we're going to discuss today with him, All That God Cares About, Common Grace and Divine Delight. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Mao. So so glad to be with you, Jason. I have uh, followed your ministry and your uh, wonderful website uh, outreach to people, and I'm just honored to be with you. Thank you very much. So um, I'll just get right to it. Dr. Mao, what sort of things does God presently take delight in? Surely it's when we sing him songs and have quiet times and are busy engaged with Christian activity, or is it more than that? Well, I think it's a lot more than that, Jason. I mean, obviously God takes delight in what his his redeemed people uh, do by way of enjoying him and glorifying him. So there's a kind of mutual delight that takes place between us and God uh, when it has to do with our, our salvation and our call to glorify God in all things. But, you know, there's a lot that happens outside of the redeemed community that God also, I think, takes delight in. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my good friends, Louis Smeeds, the late Louis Smeeds, who, who taught at Fuller Seminary, said uh, he, he had gone to uh, Moody Bible Institute, and, uh, you know, that's a great school, but he wanted more of the liberal arts. And so he talked about transferring to Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and taking his first class in English Literature 101. From a professor, he said, introduced him to a God, the likes of whom he hadn't really come across before. This was a God who, who disliked dangling participles and who liked well well put together sentences <laughs> and and if that god liked well together put uh, put together uh, sentences uh, he also enjoyed a bach concerto mm -hmm. if he enjoyed a bach concerto he enjoyed uh, deeds of love and mercy and 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 acts of working for justice and peace you know and then louis mead said uh 
that I, I met a God there that I had never encountered before. In fact, I met a God more uh, less in a prayer meeting than I did in English 101. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. now, there there is something about that that uh, I I think of um, uh, these two thousand years before Christ in China, there were these potters who produced what we call eggshell pottery. It's very fragile, very uh, carefully detailed, wonderful etchings. It's just beautiful stuff. 2,000 years before Christ. No no influence of the gospel, no influence, I don't think, of, uh, of the Old Testament teachings. But I think God looked down on that pottery and said, wow, that's really good. Wow. <laughs> uh, I take delight in that. And uh, we have a God who takes delight. We, 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 we read this in the Psalms, you know, that he takes delight in, in all of his works. And the God who enjoys seeing the hawk fly and the God who, who enjoys a sunset mm. is also a God who enjoys pottery, enjoys good poetry. And, and I'm going to say this, you know, I'm a Calvinist. And, uh, and John Calvin actually taught this. He said, you know, before John Calvin had become a, a Christian, an evangelical Christian, before he became a Calvinist, mm. uh, he had studied law in Switzerland. And, uh, and, and he, he really liked the ancient Greco-Roman writers. He liked Seneca, and Cicero, Aristotle, he liked. And uh, at one point in his great work in the Institutes, after he became a Christian, he still liked these people. And he said, mm-hmm. Uh, why should we like these people? And he said, because they have truths to teach us. And if we refuse to learn from pagan writers, we grieve the spirit of God. That's that's a pretty strong Mm. statement. Mm. But I want to say we also delight the spirit of God when we do learn from Mm. a a good essay on on law or a, a good poem or a good piece of music. In real time, like in real time, in, in the eyes of God, if you will, how does that actually work out? So in my mind, in this evangelical world, we know God is pleased with doing, engaging in Christian and church activity. And when people hear, we hear, when, when we hear people say that God appreciates good music or um, products of, you know, cultures making something wonderful. Like, how is that so? How can this be? You know what I mean? It just doesn't seem sacred. It seems secular. How can God care about secular things? Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to start with the fact that, uh, that when God, uh, you know, there, there were five days of creation before we showed up. And at the end of every one of those days, God said, that's really good. That God took delight in the sun and the moon and the stars. That God took delight in plants and flowing rivers. And and, and here's my favorite one. Uh, There's the day in which it says that God created creeping things. And and I just imagine God looking down on a a pond with nothing in it but water. Mm. And God says, let there be creeping things. Let there be swarms, he says. 
Mm. And suddenly that pond is full of uh, tadpoles and, uh, and, 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 and little, little, little fish and bugs on the water. And God looks at that and he says, that's really good. You know? And I think we miss the fact that God is showing delight there. Well, then when he says to Adam and Eve, I'm putting you in the garden to take care of all of this. And I'm also asking you to begin to fill the garden with the works of, uh, of human culture. Uh, making something out of a branch of a tree. They're, they're doing something there. They're crafting something there. Mm. And, uh, and, and that God takes the light in that. And so God takes the light in a lot of things. I mean, if, if God's taking delight in tadpoles, swimming around in a pond, uh, surely God takes delight in somebody who uh, makes a cabinet and really does a good job. Writes a poem and really does a good job. I could, I, that resonates with me because we often delight in those same things, but we almost feel, we almost feel like guilty. In your book, you say, you're talking about how so many of us might have smiles on our faces. We're bright-eyed when we're talking about Oh, we just spent the day with the grandkids at Disneyland. And then there was a great Dodger game. But then you said, when we start talking about discipleship, our tone gets serious. Yeah. Oh, why yeah. is that? Why, why is that? We, it's like in our minds, we shifted from like, we love these things and they're so cool, but they're, they're secular, if you will. They're more, we, they seem to us morally neutral, but then we shift to, the very somber subject, but very important of discipleship. What, what are we bringing into that conversation and where are we missing something? Well, I think, I think the problem there, Jason, is really with that, 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 that split between sacred and secular. You know? I mean, when, when you think that the people that, that you're surrounded with there in Hawaii, many of whom are not believers, but nonetheless, they're created in the very image of God. They're icons of divinity, you know. Mm. Uh, even if they're distorted, even if they're misusing it, they're nonetheless, they're created in the image of God. That's sacred. Mm. You know, when, when, when you go out and start walking around the town, you're on sacred territory. Wow. And this is why, as, as you know, and, and, and you and I love, Abraham Kuyper, the great uh, theologian of the 19th century, said, that every square inch of creation belongs to Jesus Christ. And, and about every one of those square inches, he says, this is mine. This belongs to me. Hmm. And he's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of the arts. He's the Lord of politics. He's the Lord of economics. He's the Lord of family life. He's the Lord of uh, dating relationships, you know? Hmm. Hmm. And when we honor him, uh, that's taking seriously the, the sacred space of the of the of the soccer stadium or the sacred space of the library you know is that something you have to train yourself though to think because we're it's so ingrained that that's the that's the sphere of soccer and that's morally neutral so even what you're telling us like god might delight in that but default well i know no matter what he likes when i sing a song to him so do you, like, for your own life, is that something you've trained your mind and now you believe it? Or do you have to remind yourself those, those realities? 
Well, I, I think we have to teach it. And, and I'm surprised how many people, when they, when they first hear something like that Abraham Kuyper quote, they say, that was a life-changing experience for me. Mm-hmm. And, and okay, uh, 10 years ago, uh, Sports Illustrated did a, a cover story on does God care who, who wins the Super Bowl? And I got interviewed for it. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 in, in the final version of it that appeared in print, I was paired with Reggie White. Reggie White, the late Reggie White, who was a running back for the Green Bay Packers. And he, uh, he was a Pentecostal minister. And uh, really, I think, a very good guy. But the, the, the interviewer said to me, uh, I, I may not quote you on this, but the, you know what Reggie White said? I, I asked Reggie White whether God cares about the, the Green Bay Packers playing in the Super Bowl. And Reggie White said, God hates losers and God loves winners. What would you say about that? And I said, you know, that's not good theology. I don't think that's good Christianity. Uh, I think here's what, I think God does enjoy the Super Bowl. But when the quarterback throws a 40-yard pass, a beautifully thrown 40-yard pass, and, and and, and the end, uh, reaches out and, and almost with one hand <laughs> pulls it in. I think God looks down on that and says, that's good. <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I created this world. Mm-hmm. Whether they're Christians or not, uh, because they're using skills and talents that God built into our nature that for us to realize that kind of potential. It's a good thing that people throw 40 yard passes and it's a good thing that they're caught. And uh, I, I think, that, so now suppose you or somebody else who had never heard about this before heard me say that. Uh, I don't think that sounds all that weird. <laughs> you know, mm. if the Lord delights in all of his works then I think the Lord also delights in a, a well-thrown pass by a quarterback. Mm-hmm. Are we? So I'm gonna get I'm oh, gonna yeah. get a little sad here. What would you say then to the person who feels? So, thinking of a professional football player throwing a pass, I think anyone's gonna hear that and say that is beautiful, especially if it's perfectly thrown he dodges a few people but the person who's and I did this I built pumps um, about 20 years ago for two years straight and it was the most monotonous thing I ever did and there was uh, one day a month I had to make this one part that took (laughs) about a minute and a half to build together and then I just threw it in a box and I would literally just want to slam my head against the wall. Uh, the person who's not throwing a pass each day, how do they go, wow, I just pleased the Lord making that little part. What do, how do they walk through that moment? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And, and I, I think we tend, when we talk about the theology of work, we tend to talk about interesting work. We talk about the, the president, but we don't talk about the security guard, you know, yeah. or, or, or the person who's, who, who, 
who mops the floors, you know. And, and I think this is not so much a problem of theology as it's a problem of the ways in which we configure work in our lives. Uh, I, I, I knew somebody who worked in a, a pickle factory, a Heinz pickle factory. And uh, they worked, they didn't stay very long, but then they had the freedom to quit because, you know, they, but they were working along, uh, alongside of young Hispanic women who desperately needed that work to support mm. families. And their whole job, this was about 40 years ago, the, 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 the whole job was standing alongside a conveyor belt and, and the pickles were already in the jars and they had to make sure that the lids were screwed on. You know? And they did that all day. <laughs> and, and I mean, so I asked my good friend, Max Dupree, the late Max Dupree, who was the head of the Herman Miller Corporation, a, a, a really fine Christian thinker about the dignity of work. And I said, what would you do there? And he said, oh, I've been in that factory. He said, it's terrible. He said, uh, yeah, we do need people to check the lids on the jars. But, you know, I'd, I'd make sure, you know what, the, the room they're working in is pretty dark. I'd, I'd, I'd rework that factory so that they, they can see outside, for one thing. I'd want to make sure they get good breaks and they, that, that, that we show an interest in their families. And he said, you know, every couple of weeks, I think they ought to get that whole crew together and talk about the role of pickles in human life. You know, where are these jars going? You know, <laughs> and 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 what, what do people use these for? So that it isn't just screwing the the lid on, but it's it's understanding the role of what we're doing in the larger culture, the mm. larger world. Now that's not enough. I mean, I I heard a speech recently, really discouraging one, that um, if you go on a cruise ship which you probably won't right now, but I mean, you go on a cruise ship and uh, you'll get to know the, the, the guys who play in the band. You'll get to know the people who wait on the tables. Usually they're African-American or Latino. Uh, if you go down a floor where the rooms are, uh, th there will be Filipino women who are cleaning the rooms, you know? But the people you will never see are sub-Saharan African men who work in the deep bowels of that ship, sorting trash, you know, sorting recyclables from the non-recyclables, you know. Now, how do we, I mean, how do, Joe, that's, that's a lot worse than what you, you were talking about. You know? Yes. Um, and I mean, maybe one thing you do is make sure that on every tour, uh, they're invited to come up and people thank them for what they're doing. You know? mm -hmm. and, and we talk about the ecology of uh, cruise ship trash. You know? uh, I mean, th th there are some things that we can do, at least, that, that can make it more, uh, more interesting. And... Uh, and, and a lot of it has to do with whether the corporations are interested in the people who are doing that work and whether there are at least ways in which they can put that work in a larger perspective that would make more sense. Mm. We need a lot of deep thinking about this. Because I appreciate your point. Well, so speaking of this example of the this sub-Saharan 
employee doing this sort of mundane and messy job, not to be overly individualistic, but that is the starting point. So let, let's speak to that, that one person's existence um, and, and what they're thinking in their mind in regards to their vocation, if they are Christians. Um, but to segue into that, you said, you said in the book um, that we need to present the message of the gospel in a manner that's appropriate to the times and cultural context in which the church finds itself. So maybe 30, 40 years ago, the cultural context was, hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd go? But yeah. there, people aren't really asking that necessarily here in North America, necessarily. They're more asking, maybe even that sub-Saharan, um, how, how is this of any value on the grand scheme? It, especially if that person is a Christian or how can I be happy? How am I going to ever get out of this and get enough money to... Um, afford a home or man, I hate um, that I have a double chin. Are these not questions that people are asking right now? Does the gospel hit those things? Well, I think so. You know, I, I, I get a lot of my theology from lines and hymns. At least they, they, they make me think about things. There's a wonderful line in one of the Christmas carols, the little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You know, and I don't know the direct answer, Jason, to to your question about the sub-Saharan guy. But his life is full of hopes and fears, and uh, he ought to at least be asked about those, and they ought to be taken seriously because there may be maybe there are hopes and fears about his kids back in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Uh, maybe they're about uh, the working conditions that could be improved. You know? mm. Uh, and uh, I think we as Christians, uh, we might even want, when we're on cruises, uh, we might want to say to the people who run those cruises, I'd like to meet some of those employees that we we never see, wow. you know, and wow. just talk to them. And, and I'm not talking about evangelism as such. I'm saying, hey, what's that like? to be doing what you're doing. I mean, at the very least, for those of us who can take those hopes and fears into our own souls and, and take them to the Lord on behalf of those people mm. and, uh, and be talking to the people who can make some changes in, in, in their lives. You know? mm, mm. That's helpful. Well, I, I'm sorry we're staying on this point so much, but the practical implications are enormous because most Christians are soccer moms and busy dads, yeah. like at least here in North America. And they don't get to have podcasts like us or, you know, teach or whatever. They're selling appliances and they're business process analysts. So moving even beyond vocation, what what does God and the gospel have to do with driving the, like we're talking ultra mundane of driving from point A to point B, or maybe even just leisure taking the boat to the river. Yeah. A, a, fem, a, fa, a Christian family taking their boat to the river and they're, they're going to miss church that Sunday. And they're all Christians when they're, but when they're water skiing, they're not thinking to themselves, um, 
God delights in me enjoying this water skiing. Should they? Should they deflect their mind to say, I'm water skiing and God is enjoying it? I, I do think there's a place for that, but, but they probably are just thinking, yes, yeah. this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I get a little wary of spiritualizing everything, you know, so that you turn water skiing into an act of worship. <laughs> Freeze! No, water skiing is water skiing, you know. But but there's a sense that I, I think the important thing for them to realize, and maybe they need to say this in their family devotions, or maybe they ought to have a little time getting ready for this trip where they actually talk about what does it mean for us as Christians, and just to say, when you're out there water skiing, uh, you don't have to be thinking religious stuff. Uh, but you, you need to know ahead of time that mm. uh, God will take delight in your enjoyment of that. That's what, you know, that's wow. why he created a world in which people can water ski Wow, is because he cares about that. And wow. so I think it's not so much what are you, what's happening when you're water skiing, but how does your worldview, God, it, it, how, do, how do we get through to our kids that God simply wants us to enjoy water skiing and takes delight when we do it well <laughs> and, and when we're really having a good time on it. Mm-hmm. What about, I really like hate, um, from Haiti, Haitian artwork, and a lot of it is voodoo themed. Yeah. I like the architecture of Buddhist monasteries. You had mentioned, um, uh, I think it was called like egg eggshell vases or whatever. So these are clearly non-Christian. What about the Tower of Babel? What if that What if that was done really well, and they and the people who created this tower did so, um, and they were very, you know, they were great engineers in in making the mortar or whatever. What is God's view of these things that are? non-christian and not only non-christian maybe even done by pagans but they're done well Mm -hmm. um and even taking a step further a lot a lot of christians might watch the game of thrones which is like soft core porn what where do we what do we do with those things we we yeah well i mean interesting question about the tower of babel and i mean that that one is so clearly sinful because they want to build a tower that will get them into the heavens, you know, and and that God is really upset about that. <laughs> but I don't think he's upset about the skills that go into it. I think wow. he's upset about the project, you know. And mm. similarly, you know, a, a person who's an atheist who builds an art gallery uh, as a way of getting people to... Uh, you know, invest in art in such a way that they that they don't they, they they deny values that are associated with things that God cares about. Uh, you have to distinguish between maybe the the actual work of art and the, the 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 whole project of it. And there's no question that Picasso uh, was a pretty bad guy who did a lot of bad things and may have been motivated by terrible things. But nonetheless, he produced paintings that. Uh, that God takes delight in, mm. you know, even though God didn't like him, maybe, <laughs> or didn't like the, a lot of his his motives. And I, the the whole question of Haiti, 
question of Game of Thrones. These are fascinating questions. Here's a, uh, Jason, we, we could play around with this a little bit, but I was, I was having dinner one evening. I was speaking someplace and having dinner with a, a Christian couple and uh, middle-aged people. And she said to me, have you ever seen The Bachelor? And I said, no, I, I've read a lot about it, but I, she said, you know, our, our grown-up daughters just love this. Every week, the two of them get together and watch it, you know. And they, they just think it's wonderful. And they keep saying, Mom, why don't you come and watch it with us? And she said, I, I'm sure I would hate it. I mean, everything I know about it. I'm, and in fact, I don't like the fact that my daughters like it. Uh, what, what should I say to them? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I quoted that Christmas carol. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And I said, you know, uh, and, and I checked this out after. I, I watched enough of The Bachelor afterward to make sure I, I had it right. And I did. But that, that every episode of The Bachelor is a lot about hopes and fears, you know. And I said, maybe, maybe you ought to uh, say to your daughters, yeah, I'm going to come and watch it with you. And, and can we talk about it afterward? Because I'd like to, 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 to get at some of the issues here that I'm sure you folks have gotten into as well. And that is, what are the hopes and fears that we see in an episode of The Bachelor? Mm. The fear of being shamed. The fear of being reduced to nothing but a physical body. Uh, the, the, the hope to be loved, to be respected, uh, to have a relationship that, that is beyond physical. Um, and, and, and just to say, suppose we had a chance to just sit and talk to one of those people. Uh, how would we bring good news to them you know, yeah. about how, who Jesus is? And why Jesus wants them to flourish uh, with the kinds of hopes and fears that, that guide their life. But he wants to do something to those hopes and fears as well. And, and I think Game of Thrones uh, is really a drama about some of the fundamental issues of human life. And, and our, 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 our human condition. And I think it's very important for some of us, and not just... Uh, I mean, it isn't all, I mean, sometimes you just watch stuff because they're interesting, you know. But but I think uh, something that has captured the imagination of the culture like that. I, I was speaking in a big Pentecostal church in Singapore. And I was talking about the, the need to exegete culture, the, the stuff on television, what's going on? And I said, now you folks, you wouldn't... Uh, you wouldn't know about this, but there's a program very popular in the United States right now called uh, The Walking Dead. And, you know, a, a really interesting question. Why all this fascination with death and with, with dying people and zombies and, and the like? And now we have uh, one on Netflix that, that makes the afterlife just really uh, enjoyable and a lot of fun, you know? And we either look at death as this, this zombie-like thing, or we look at it as a glorified version of, of, of life as we know it. And how do we, as, and so and afterward, the pastor said to me, you know, and that was an interesting point. He said, but I want you to know, every Tuesday night, um, we get a group of people, about 30 or 40 of them, who come together 
and they've all watched the ep last episode of The Walking Dead, and they talk about just the kind of thing you're talking about. <laughs> and I think that's wonderful. Wouldn't it be great to have um, YWAM or the First Presbyterian Church of, of Honolulu have people get together and just talk about, about uh, Game of Thrones and uh, what's going on there? And, and what 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 are the hopes and fears that uh, that that are at play there? And and what would we say, having exegeted those? Wow! As good news to those people. Mm, mm. I mean, there's something wonderful about that. I think. Yeah. Now, I mean, some stuff is off limits. Obviously, you talk about softcore. Porn, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you ought to watch porn. What about exegete that one? <laughs> <laughs> so real quick, I want to just ask, um, you, you specialize in um, psychology. And if I, if I one day was not inside of Christ, I wasn't a Christian anymore. And because um, there's insider knowledge that people who aren't Christians don't have. And this is the attack I would have against Christianity is um, the daily grind of having two natures. How do you've been a Christian a long time? How do I deal with having two different natures? I have a sinful nature and I, part of my heart has been circumcised by the spirit and uh, God's Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And it seems, it's like almost like I have two personalities. How do I deal with that? Well, he, um, I, I just, I mean, I, I, I hope we don't just get into thinking of it as these two selves that don't have anything to say to each other, you know, because they're just totally pulling in completely different directions. We get a little bit of that in Paul, you know, that the oh wicked wretch that I am and, and all of this. But uh, I just love that verse in First John where it says, um, Beloved, we are already the sons and daughters of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when he shall appear, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is, you know. And uh, theologically, we talk about the, the already and the not yet. You know, we're already new creatures in Christ, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. We're on our way. And I think when, when we see it as a journey, as a process, uh, and it, and it goes slowly. I mean, I get a little tired of people who tell me that I've I've, I've got to be completely holy, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, in one sense, that's that's right. But we're on a journey, and it takes a while. And frankly, uh, some of it we just do the best of what we can, yeah. but but always with the hope, with the goal in mind that it does not yet appear what we shall be and that we are on the way toward something mm -hmm. and that we ask the Lord not to let the, 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 the bad stuff in us um, keep us from moving ahead toward that. Mm -hmm. Also knowing that we are not yet there. And uh, I had a friend who um, he's no longer with us and it, he, 
he had a very bad marriage. It was just horrible. And, and I said, you know, how do you handle that? And he said, you know, sometimes you just, you just kind of make the best of what you got, you know? And, and there's something about that that I like, you know? Mm. Uh, and, you know, he, he wasn't, I mean, he, he, was, he was just making the best with what he got. Mm-hmm. But he also knew that it does not yet appear what he shall be. Yeah. Yeah. So, how, Dr. Mal, for you, in talking about this, this already not yet, this pilgrimage of the Christian life, and you've been a saint for a while, what, what, um, what truths, biblical truths or theological realities are part of your arsenal of the daily life that you find yourself applying in, in circumstances like throughout the day? In other words, can you share some wisdom with us, those of us who, because not as many people have been able to read and consider things like you have, but what you've been reading and considering applies to most of us. So as you've done scouring, reading all these things and praying and talking, what you know, what has been parsed down is left and you bring with you. And that's the stuff you want to tell your grandchildren. And that's the stuff you want to tell your neighbor and the people you work with. What are the things that are helping you navigate this life? Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, you know, you're asking me for wisdom that I don't pretend to have. So, uh, but let me, let me say this, you know, you went, you were talking about that the couple that takes their kids, their grandkids to Disney and really enjoys that. And yet when they get to talking about discipleship, it's a real downer. You know, we got to, we got to, uh, we, we, the cost of discipleship, you know, we've got to identify with suffering and, and, and there's the, the you know, as, as I hope you know that I believe that yeah. as, as well, but uh, I, I also want to, I mean, here's an interesting question. If if discipleship is this downer of of suffering and costliness, are we going to stop being disciples in the new kingdom? Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well done there. <laughs> and 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 I think not. I think to be a disciple is a follower of Jesus, and when when it appears what we shall be, and we shall be like Him. Mm. Uh, we're not going to be suffering anymore. Uh, Joe is not going to have to worry about all that, that, that evil nature, that, that old nature that he, he struggles with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in many ways, we, we're looking, when you go to an art gallery or, or you just watch a good football game or you see a sunset, you're getting a taste of something that will flood the whole creation you know? wow. the, the light of the glory of god uh, all things will be made new in jesus christ and that there's something wonderful about uh, those tastes those foretastes of the good things hmm. and again i don't want to i don't just go through life every day all day thinking theologically about stuff like that but uh, but nonetheless um you know, our, our neighbors, just, uh, we hardly know them, but they, they've been there and they've been reliable and they've stepped in a couple times when we've gone away, they took care of things for us. And they just told us that uh, they're going to move. Uh, and I, I feel kind of sad about that. Mm-hmm. 
Because just enjoying a good neighbor and feeling the security of that is, is something that God promises will be glorified <laughs> uh, in, in, in the new creation, you know? Dr. Mel, when I hear you talk, I, I just feel like, you know, I'm not trying to stroke your ego, but I feel like you are a man, like I just, I, I'm just encouraged by the way you're carrying yourself. You seem to very much not be centered on yourself, but you're like, let's invite people into the conversation. Let's enjoy, let's enjoy creation. Let's look to God. Let's not over-spiritualize things. But, um, but what I'm thinking is, when I hear you, like, I try to play the banjo. I hear someone play the banjo, and I'm like, oh, man, that sounds so good. I pick it up, and I can hit two strings. And I'm like, ah, oh, forget it. I'm just going to put it down and just listen to the other guy. How can I, like, I'm so encouraged, as I'm sure the Christianity that you're saying, the biblical Christianity rooted in Genesis, and we see it in, you know, in, in the restoration. How, how do I bring these, again, I've almost kind of said it earlier, but how do we bring these concepts that are foreign to many, but resonate with us? How do I bring this into my life? Like re really, I know, again, I know I've almost asked you this question, but I'm just thinking of like my dad, he restores gas pumps. That's what he's into. <laughs> he loves it. We're, you know, he loves the grandkids, but he feels optimal Christian when he's at church, when he's reading the Bible and, but he, he hates to read the Bible. It hurts his eyes. He gets bored. That's just the life of a lot of people. Sorry, dad. <laughs> how can you, how can we put feet to the things that you're saying now? Well, uh, I don't, I mean, the, the answer is Jason. I don't really know. I, I think that uh, this is why so many of us want to talk about the importance of a worldview. And that is, uh, it's important to put it in context, at least, you know, that, uh, that God wants you to enjoy playing the banjo. And God doesn't care whether you're as good as, you know, the folks in Nashville uh, who, who do it professionally. But that the, if you can just learn to play a few good chords, that there's something about that that's a part of the creation that God intended, that God enjoyed, you know. And uh, your dad, too. I mean, I don't know that everybody has to enjoy reading the Bible. Your dad obviously enjoys hearing people talk about the Bible, mm. singing hymns and psalms that, that capture the message of the Bible. Wow. Uh, not everybody has to be a theologian, uh, but I want to. I would would want to encourage your dad to to take delight in those pumps, you know, to take delight in grandchildren, and realize that this too is a part of glorifying God and enjoying God and enjoying what God enjoys, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think we miss out on a lot of that. That. Uh, by a kind of narrow thing that Christianity is all about church and it's all about being in a spiritual mood, you know? Um, I, I, I have a hard time getting in a spiritual mood uh, about things. You, I, I don't know if you've ever heard my story, but I wrote a little book several years ago called Praying at Burger King, you know? 
And a friend and I, we went, uh, we were in a, uh, at a convention in another city and, and we didn't want to hang around with the convention people. So we went off and found a Burger King and it was crowded at, at noon. And we had to stand in line. We had a hard time getting a table. There were families with little kids and the smell of French fries in the air. And we had our, uh, our Whopper and our Diet Coke. Well, I would get a Diet Coke nuts to feel bad about having the Whopper and the French fries. <laughs> And we bowed our heads and, and we quietly prayed. And then we started eating. My friend said to me, you ever, you ever uh, think about how, how odd it is to pray at Burger King? I mean, you know, it's hard to get in a praying mood at Burger King. I feel like I just say some words, but I don't feel very spiritual. <laughs> you know? That's good. And uh, yeah, I thought about that. And I was thinking, you know, suppose you're in a mall. In a crowded mall and you're walking along and, and, and you see a person coming that you haven't seen for about six months. You really like the person. But it's this crowded mall and a lot of noise. And and so you say to yourself, you know, I got to get in a mood. With, I, I want to say to that person, it's good to see you, but I don't really feel like I'm being sincere about that. So maybe I got to just sit on a bench for a while and try to get in the mood where I can really feel good about that person. You know? <laughs> But you can't do it. You know why? Because she's there. You know? She's coming towards you. And, and I want to say, I don't think you have to get in a mood to pray at Burger King. I think God is there. And just to have a sense that every square inch of Burger King belongs to Jesus Christ, including the little kids running around and the smell of, the, of, of French fries in the air. And, and you just stop. And you just say, Lord, I'm not in an especially religious mood right now, but you're there. And I want to acknowledge that you're, you're here. You're here at Burger King. Mm. Yeah. That's enough. That's only wants of us. Yeah. And so I think, uh, again, I don't want to spiritualize. I just feel so close to the Lord in Burger King. Mm. Yeah. Nonsense. I don't, you know. But, but I don't think the Lord wants me to feel close to him at Burger King. But he doesn't want me to think that I'm in enemy territory either. You know? Wow. Yeah. Joe, I've been bogarting. You got any for Dr. Mal? Um, do you think that part of that, God delighting in even you eating at Burger King, how much of that is related to the fact that we look like God? And I'm trying to see if there's a connection in people having even value that they can value themselves while they're even at the bottom of a cruise ship sorting through um, trash because they look like Yahweh in a sense they are creating. Um, Would you even tell them I don't know uh, how much of how much of God's pleasure. This is the question. How much of God's pleasure is related to us being his image? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, th- I think that Joe, I mean, I, I, I think that that's a profound question. That's a profound point that you're making. Um, 
but it's also that to be in his image is to be imaging him. It's to be in a relationship with him. It's acknowledging that he's always there. That you know, Psalm one thirty nine. How can I ever escape your presence? You know, uh, the historian Mark Knoll, the Christian historian, he and I had we 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 both love hymns, and we've done some scholarly work on hymns. But there's one hymn that I love that he hates, uh, that he doesn't like. It's, I come to the garden alone when the dew is still on the roses, the joy we share as we tarry there, none, you know, none other has ever known. Um, he finds that kind of sickly romanticism. And furthermore, uh, isn't it arrogant to say the joy that I experience with God, no one else has ever known. I mean, isn't that kind of individualism at its worst, you know? And uh, my, it was both of my parents' favorite hymn, and they, they, we sang it at each of their funerals, you know, and I can play that card with them, and then he's kind of nice to me about it. But we, we disagree. Uh, I like it better than he does. But he sent me an article one time about a Chinese pastor who during the Cultural Revolution had been sent to a detention camp and his job every day for two years, they put him down in a in a hole in the ground full of human feces. And he just shoveled all day. It wasn't even clear that he was shoveling it in a, for, for any good. Oh man. But it was just humiliating. And he said, this Chinese pastor said, I refuse to allow them to define my reality. And as I was shoveling, I, I sang, I come to the garden alone when the dew was still. And, and I was in the garden with my Lord. You know? wow. Now, again, that can be, that's pretty heavy. But nonetheless, that guy working in the depths of that cruise ship, uh, to be able to bring him to a point where he can say, I'm not alone down here, you know? Mm. And even if I don't get along with the other guys who are doing this, I'm not alone. You know? mm. And uh, I'm, I, it does not yet appear what I shall be. <laughs> mm. uh, and, and I think that image of God, that sense that I have a worth that no one else can define away by putting me in a pit full of, of crap or putting me in, in the depths of a, a garbage pit in a ship. Uh, that there's something about that 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 is a reassuring thing. Mm. It's a mm. it, it's a way of, of of saying no one else can define who I am and where I am uh, because I'm a child of God created in the very image of God, mm. Mm. and uh, I I'm always in His presence. You know, we we I'm, we, we have this wonderful phrase in, in that Coram Deo. We live our lives. Quorum there before the face of God. That we're always living before the face of God, and sometimes that takes some work to acknowledge. But but at least we maybe at the beginning of a day uh, before they put us into the pit, <laughs> it would be good to remind ourselves that uh, the Lord's going down there with us. Yeah, so good, Doctor. As as we close here, and thanks again for this time. As we close, um, what do you see if, when you survey the Bible? What do you see as the, as the great commissions and the great mandates given to Christians um, that, that you would leave us with? Like, can you, 
Can you remind us what we're called to do day in and day out, especially in the context of like my sister-in-law just lost her job. She's a single mom and she got in a wreck last or the night before last and broke three bones. That's kind of, that seems like most of our lives once every three years. So just even in that context, the context like that, just least common denominator as Christians, what are we called to do and to receive as we just live out these lives until, until we see him face to face? Yeah. Wow. You're, you're posing great questions to me and, and, you know, I'm not a fount of wisdom on all of these things. <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep going back to that great opening question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end? What is your sister's chief end? Hmm. And it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it's pretty hard for her to enjoy him right now. Yeah. Uh, but to know that... Uh, She's on a journey, that it is a process, that the present conditions do not define uh, where the journey is, is heading. That's very important. Amen. And I think, I know this is difficult, but uh, I, I, I want to, if, if we had more time, I'd go back to your Haitian question and the Buddhist question, because I think that one of the things that we need to do in encountering views very different than what we believe as Christians is is to see what we can learn from them. I mean, that's what John Calvin did with those ancient pagan poets. He learned mm. from them. Mm. And uh, that, let me just mention this. One, one of my good friends, you ought to maybe try to get him on sometime. I can, uh, Bob Lane, Robert Lane was the CEO at John Deere International for many years. And he loved the doctrine of common grace <laughs> as a Christian. Because he said, you know, as the CEO of John Deere, when I go to Pakistan and I meet Muslim John Deere dealers, I know I'm going to learn from them. You know? uh, well, Hindu John Deere dealers or, or Marxist John Deere dealers in China. I go in with the expectation that God is going to teach me something in all of this. Now, I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to witness but as a John Deere guy, I can go into all of these different meetings with the expectation that I will learn because all truth is God's truth. Yeah. And I, I do think that even in the worst of situations, and I know this is difficult, but that uh, what, do I, what, what am I learning here? That, that we see this as a learning experience, that we, we can bring to, into the kingdom. And and it also can I I would hope with your sister and and is to create genuine empathy for other people those those little kids on the borders those little Mexican kids separated from their parents you know uh, the Asian woman my Asian student walking down the street in Pasadena California and having a person try to spit in her face because she's responsible for the Kung flu, you know. Uh, these are, we have to build empathy and, and, and maybe out of these kinds of difficult experiences, we can learn what empathy, we can learn to be, have empathy for those who are helpless, for those who are, 
are not sure how they're going to get through the day. Mm. And uh, there, there may be things that we need to learn, you know, to, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice in those who rejoice. Thank you for essentially encouraging us to love God and love others. Like I, that that's easily derivable from you. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for this time. I, I appreciate, I appreciate the study that you've done and I appreciate that for you. I know you enjoy theology, but it's not just a hobby. <laughs> You're concerned with the living God. So I, I thank you for that. Thanks for joining us. And um, the living dead as well. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Um, as we jump off, is there any, anything that you might suggest um, for us to read or for us to watch or for us to listen to or for us just to start Googling around, even any terminology or any people or anything like that? Boy, that's, I, I, that's, that's a tough one right now. You know, uh, I would say Bob Lane, my, my friend at, uh, who, who was a CEO at John Deere, uh, had gone to Wheaton College in his younger days. And one of his professors there, Arthur Holmes, wrote a little book called All Truth is God's Truth. And he said that was one of the most important books for him working for John Deere. Uh, that that he, could, he could meet with Pakistani Muslim John Deere dealers and learn from them because he knows that all truth is God's truth. Uh. And I, I do think... Uh, I think it's so important for us to be nurtured by, and I'm not saying heavy theology books, but by people who also who have been faithful to the gospel under very difficult conditions. One of my saints is Corey Tenbo, who, uh, who suffered on behalf of the Jewish people uh, in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation, you know. And uh, uh, we, we need those saints and heroes and heroines of the past to show us what it's like uh, to get through these things and be faithful. And we need a lot of help in that right now, today, in our deeply divided world. Thank you very much for connecting with us. Hopefully we could have part two, three, four, five, and six. Um, that would be glorious. Hey, Jason and Joe, appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you, and God bless you both. Thank you. Thank be you. well. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to leave.